Jesus taught, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. For years, as I read that text, I was like, so what's the big deal? I mean, I know fool is not nice, but it doesn't seem that severe to me. I'm like, Jesus, I grew up with four brothers. You should have heard some of the stuff we said to each other. So what is it with fool? But as I've read the Bible over these ensuing years, I've come to realize that the most serious and damning thing you can say of a person in biblical language is you fool. Because fool, in, in, in the Bible's terminology, does not just mean somebody who's maybe a little clueless or a little slow. It means somebody who is willfully, obstinately denying what they could know. They're arrogant, and so they're pretending and denying. That they're, they're saying there's no God. And why are they saying that? So they can do with whatever, whatever they want. They can get away with it. And so, what, as the Bible describes the fool, here's inevitably what happens in that person's life. They become an angry person. They become a person that will not accept or tolerate any correction. You try to say something to them, and they just blow you off. They are somebody who will run over other people. They will hurt the people around them. And if this foolishness continues long enough, they will wreck their very lives. Which is why Jesus says to you and to me, we can't handle saying to someone, you fool. It's the same reason we don't hand the nuclear launch codes to a 12-year-old. It's too serious. The only one who, who could ever say this is, is God, who in his, his wisdom and, and absolute compassion for us can look at a person's entire life, discern the motives and intent of their heart, and with complete impartiality and yet the blinding holiness of his love say to a person when they've died, you fool. And this morning, we're going to look at a parable in which God shows up as a character. And he says to the person in that story, you fool. And honestly, this week has been, of study, has been a personal project for me. I've been like, Lord, please, whatever happens in my life, may I not end up somehow missing it and ending up where you say to me at the conclusion of my life, you fool, Kevin, you missed it. What were you thinking? Oh, I, I just want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've, you've acted so wisely. And, and enter into the joy of the Lord. That's what I want, and that's what I want for every one of you. And so I want to try to express just as clearly as I can, what do you have to do to avoid ever hearing from the mouth of God, you fool? Let's look at it together. And it's so important. We're, we're going to go verse by verse and make sure that we get it. Luke 12, verse 13. Jesus is teaching, and someone calls out from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Now, to us, that seems like a rude interruption, but it was not considered that then. Rabbis were people of great social standing in the community, wisdom, and so they often were called upon to settle disputes between people. And so here's this guy's situation. Dad dies, and when dad dies, he leaves the family farm as a unit to the two sons. 
And this guy's the younger son, so he inherits one-third of the farm. And what he wants to do is sell off the farm, cash it all in, and and take his one-third of the money and get on with his life. But his older brother, who, by the way, received two-thirds and is the executor, is like, are you crazy? The farm is worth so much more if we keep it together. And so this guy is feeling really angry about this, and he decides, of all the rabbis I could go to, this Jesus really seems to have an acute heart of compassion for the oppressed. I'm taking my case to him. But he picks the wrong rabbi. Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life's not measured by how much you own. And all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. This conversation was about how, what's wrong with my brother. How did it all of a sudden become a conversation about what's wrong with me? Because Jesus hears in this demand, not, my relationship with my brother means so much. Would you be an impartial judge for our case so that we can resolve this and live in peace? No, it's, would you be a prosecuting attorney and get the money that I'm due? And he hears that demand in there. And he's like, friend, you are willing to rupture your relationship with your only brother over money? Is it really a case that you just have an impartial sense of principle and justice? Or could it be that greed has infected your heart and now you're demanding what's yours? You're not standing here saying, teacher, demand that, that uh, my brother get to keep all of it, whatever it takes, so that I preserve the family relationship. Now, Jesus, why does he say twice? Beware! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And I think the reason is because we never know when greed comes into our heart. We can't see it. I, I have never thought once, I'd really like to become a greedy person. That would be awesome. No, and none of you ever have or ever will. None of us wants to become greedy, and yet we all know greedy people. How is it that greedy, greed can, can infect us? It's because greed wears camo. Greed always hides behind, something, hides behind something good and something normal so we don't see it. And I, I wrote down five, five different things that I thought of that, that are good and normal things in our lives and that greed can sometimes come in and, and sneak in behind so we don't recognize it. One is worry. You go, oh man, I'm so worried about how, how we're going to meet this need. Well, you know, that worry is not only normal, but it's actually good. Somebody needs to be thinking about this and how how the bills are going to get paid. But what can happen in that moment is that greed sneaks in, and you're no longer also asking the question, and how do I also give to others? How about a second one? Love for children. Wow, this was hard when Karen and I were raising children. And and my observation, it's ten times harder for parents today. It's like, how could you ever look at your child and say, you know, we just can't afford that, that sports league. We, we just don't have enough money for the registration fee or the uniform or, or the shoes that everybody else is wearing. And so behind love for children, it, it sneaks in. You know what is a great gift you can actually give your child is learning how to pray and ask God for provision, learning how to accept that sometimes he gives us abundance and sometimes lack, and we can live in contentment in both, Paul teaches. So hard. I'll tell you, the third one is, is my Achilles heel, a hobby or a passion. I love tech. And I had an iPhone 5. You know, it was perfectly good. It did everything I needed. And then they brought out the 6. 
I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you're a foodie or you're, you're, you have a fashion sense or you love design or, or you, you love travel or you have some hobby for performance racing or whatever it is. And, and you, you say, man, I can't help it that I'm just an enthusiast. I'm more into this and I have kind of a more developed sense around this. That's all great. But be careful of greed. Fourth, taking care of business. I wouldn't necessarily get this for myself, but I, I kind of need this for what I do. I mean, anybody in my situation would have this. And last, securing our future. Now, Scripture is the friend of planning and preparing for future, but when you're sitting down with the financial advisor and you are doing that, which is great, I hope you do, is anyone in the room thinking, yes, and how are we going to continue to give generously both now and then? Is that part of the conversation? Do you see how greed sneaks up on us? And so we don't, we don't even recognize it. And so Jesus has to warn us against it. And then he tells them a story. A rich man, verse 16, had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Now, this is a dream come true. This guy's business has taken off. And, and I, I've never been a farmer, but I have visited a couple farms of friends. I can tell you, are there, there are very few people who work as hard as farmers. They're up early in the morning. They're working late at night. They're out in all kinds of weather. They're doing work that's often dangerous and menial, and they are working. And so this guy, this guy didn't come by his money, by oppressing workers, cooking the books. He just did a really good job in business, and his business took off. And so he's, he's now got a problem. And, I mean, it's a, it's a great problem to have, right? I'm so successful, I actually don't know what to do with this surplus. But it actually is a serious problem. If I just leave this grain out, out on the ground not inside a barn, rain's going to fall on it, it's going to mildew and ruin it. Or, or rodents are going to come along and, and eat it, and then I just wasted all, all that work. Why would I do that? So, verse 18, he says, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. That's going to take some time. It's going to take some money, some infrastructure improvements, but, it, but it's worth it, because then I'll have room enough to store all my weed and other goods, and I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, when Jesus tells this story, there's not one person in the crowd who's going, what a bad guy. They're saying, that's my dream, actually. Wouldn't it be awesome if I could reach a place where I was independently wealthy and where I didn't have to worry that when the economy goes down, I'm in trouble. I could just go out to my barn and, and bring in some more wheat because there's plenty out there. I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about the vagaries of weather and, and all this kind of stuff. And what's really great is I've killed myself to get to this point. I mean, this came through honest, hard work and earning. It'll be so nice to kind of kick back a little and not always have to be up every day early. I can hire people to do that now. So that, he is our dream. But verse 20, God said to him, You fool, you'll die this very night. Well, that's inconvenient. That kind of messes with the retirement plan. Now, I imagine the funeral that week, it's packed because everybody in the town admires this guy. He's been the most successful business guy in, in town. And he, he's hired a lot of people now who are farm workers. They're dependent on him, and they re appreciate him. They respect him. He hired people to build the barns. And so the rabbi stands up and talks about how hard he worked and and how smart he was at business, and how successful he was, and honest he was, and all of that's true. And then God says, 
you full? So this is the critical question. What is it that made this hardworking, smart, honest, and highly successful guy a fool in God's eyes? And Christians have become very confused about that because there's so much good in this person. So I want to make explicitly clear what it is and what it isn't. First of all, he was not a fool because he worked hard. Proverbs 6 says, Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. They labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. You see, the Bible is the friend of the person who works hard, and it is the foe of the person who's lazy. So there's no problem with the fact that this guy worked very hard. There's also, it's not a problem that he made a lot of money. As you read through the scriptures, many of the people who had the closest relationship with God and deep intimacy with him, who were considered friends of God, were people with astonishing amounts of wealth for their time and in their place. Abraham, King David, Joseph of Arimathea. So it's not that he worked hard, it's not that he made a lot of money, and it's not even that he stored up a lot of surplus. The Bible commends, as one of the wisest people, Joseph, who when he was governor of Egypt, did this. Joseph gathered all the crops grown in Egypt and stored the grain from the surrounding fields. He piled up huge amounts of grain, like sand on the seashore. Finally, he stopped keeping records because there was too much to measure. The question is, why are you storing it? Joseph was storing it to save the lives of hungry people. No, this guy is a fool for two reasons, and I want us to be very clear on that. The first one is this. He pretended not to know God determines how long I live. Look look in verse 19. He says, I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. He's like, I'm good for years. I'm going to be around a long time. So when he quotes the old proverb, eat, drink, and be merry, you notice how he leaves off, for tomorrow you will die? (laughs) He's going to be around forever. But God says that very night, friend, your life was on loan, and I can call in the loan anytime. You see, we we get confused, and we think, well, I I, got to get it all done now, and, and, and therefore we store up wealth for our own use, and then we're not necessarily able to use it. And this guy's pretending, even though he sees people die every month, he's pretending, I'm not going to die. He's pretending, maybe I could take it with me somehow. No. And so he gets to heaven, and Jesus looks at him and says, I was hungry, and you gave me nothing. And what's his defense? Yeah, but I had some great parties at my house. It's, it's so sad. And Jesus is so, so, so hard goes out for him. He's like, man, how could you build such a successful business and end up spiritually bankrupt? How could you hoard and hoard and hoard and end up with nothing? That's so stupid. So God says to him, you're a fool. Now, how do you and I avoid that kind of folly where we somehow delude ourselves that God does not determine how long I live? Here's how it is. We, we have to handle our money as though tax day is coming. Now, here's what I mean by that. Throughout the year, my favorite day going to my mailbox here at Res is twice a month, when there's an envelope in my box with a little window in it and kind of a blue-colored paper inside. Now, as much as I love getting notes from you, I really like getting this envelope. 
<laughs> income. It's awesome. And what's really fun is when maybe I write an article on the side or something and I get some extra or sort of unexpected income. That's really awesome. I celebrate that. And the moments during the year when I wince a little bit is when I write out the check to the clean water fund. Because even though I know it's important and I would like to help, ow, you know, I, oh, I wince. Now, on April 15th, six months from now, when I do my taxes, I can tell you what's going to happen. Every time I see more income, I'm going to wince. Because I'm like, oop, that increases my taxable income. I wish that hadn't come in. Maybe I shouldn't have done that extra freelance. And then I look at every charitable contribution I've made during the year and I celebrate. I'm like, lowers my taxable income. See? And that's what it's going to be like for you and me when we go into heaven. It's going to be like tax day where the things we're going to celebrate the most is what we gave away. And where we're going to wince is when we hoarded it unnecessarily for ourselves. Friends, we've got to handle our money like tax day is coming and not be like this guy who pretends never going to happen. The IRS is never going to find me. God is never going to call in the loan. All right, well, there's a second thing that he pretends not to know. He pretends not to know God cares how I live. Really? You have the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures, and you don't know that? Look at verses uh, 17, and let's just count the number of times he uses the word I. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns. Then I'll have room, and I'll sit back. And then there's four times where he says, my. Okay, God has just prospered this guy in an amazing way. And is he sitting down and having a a prayerful conversation with God and saying, God, I I did nothing to to have this field, a field this fertile. This soil was given to me by you through nothing that I could have figured out. And the sun and the rain that just worked perfectly this season to allow this bumper crop, I had nothing to do with that. Yes, I added my hard work, but really, it's all from you. So therefore, what could I do, God, with this surplus? What would you have me do? Instead, he's having this painful soliloquy with himself where he's saying to himself, my friend. And you get the sense, maybe he's like his only friend. Isn't that sad? And he's trying to figure it out himself, and he's got this problem where he's got too much stuff and not enough space, and so he solves it in the wrong way by adding more space. Now, before we get too hard on this guy, can we just say that we all think this way in America? When we have too much stuff and too little space, we all go and get more space. I was thinking about this last weekend as I was hauling stuff that we had stored at my sister-in-law's out of her basement. We probably had like two rooms worth of boxes and furniture and stuff that was down there, and we didn't need it. It wasn't in our house, and we didn't have room, and so she had kindly let us use it, but now she's preparing to move, and so we had to clean it out, and I was kind of resentful, honestly, that on Friday night I was having to schlep this stuff up her basement steps and out, and as I was doing that, I was thinking to myself, where did all this stuff come from, and why the heck have we kept it? What were, you know, what were we thinking? I, I packed my van absolutely full and then drove it to Goodwill, and I gave it all away. It felt so good. Now, here's, over the last 40 years, one of the fastest-growing industries in America is storage units. You drive around any corner, you store it. Lifetime storage, whatever. Do you know, according to the Self-Storage Association, there is now so much storage space in America that every single man, woman, and child in America, that's 318 million people, could stand at the same time in a storage unit and still have some room. 
Because every time we have a question, we got too much stuff and not enough space, we always want to solve it on the space side. What if we solved it on the stuff side? What if we said, why don't I sell it and give the money away to something good? Why don't I give it away? And then why don't I take that 50 bucks a month or 100 bucks a month or 150 bucks a month, whatever I'm paying for that storage rental unit, and I give that to benefit a church, a parachurch, some people in need. Wouldn't that be awesome? Some of you have actually been praying, God, how could I give more generously to people in need? I just told you. (laughs) All right, now, how do we apply all of this? Jesus tells us right here in verse 21. He says, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. What I think Jesus is saying here is we need a new way of measuring our lives and defining success in our lives. We need what business strategist Marcus Buckingham would call a new core score. Here's what that is. Buckingham has studied business leaders for 20 years, and he discovered that the great ones are able to make things really simple. So of all the data that you have to manage and monitor in a business— they boil it all down and say, what is the one thing that if we measure that and get that right, like pretty much everything else in the business works. So for example, you take zappos.com. I don't know if any of you have ordered from them, but they've made their one core score, how many customers go, wow, that's it. And so like you go online, the customer testimonials blew me away. There's, there was one on there that this woman said, I, I told them that I was ordering these shoes for my mother's funeral And the next day, flowers showed up as sympathy from Zappos. Wow! Now, what if you and I made our core score in life not how big my bank account's getting, but how big my account with God is getting? What if we changed the stupid core scores that we're all using and we got a better one? Okay, I I know this because I've, I've had some really bad core scores in my life. When I was 25, I took a job and they offered me $25,000 a year for the job. And I was excited, and I noted that the numbers matched up, my age and the number of thousands in the salary. And so here's what I said to myself. I said, you know what? I'm going to work in my life, and I'm going to define success this way. If the number in my salary is a bigger number than my age. So at 30, I want to be making $31,000 or more. See? That was my core score. And after a while, God prospered me, and I quickly began to see uh, uh, that maybe the salary was going to actually win that competition. And so then I got myself a new core score. How many people report to me? What a stupid core score. And pastors, they're just as bad. You go to pastor conferences, and they ask, hey, tell me about your church. They're not saying, tell me about how faithful your people have been through persevering through trial. They're saying, how many people attend? What a dismal core score. Does that really say what's most important about the life and health of a church before God? And yet we all have this. Some of us, it's like, I want a really nice home. I I would like to have high-achieving kids. I would like to get published, or whatever it is. What if we changed in those core scores and went with this one? I want a rich relationship with God. That's how I'm going to define success. That's going to be the one thing that I measure the most. And you know what will happen if you and I choose that kind of core score. Let's think this through. The first thing I can promise you is your relationships will get better. The guy who started this whole story from Jesus has a ruptured relationship with his brother because of money and greed. If his core score was, how do I grow in my relationship with God? He's like, 
you know, brother, if you're not ready to sell, I'm not ready either. This guy who's, who's got his, it made is sitting in his, in his living room talking to himself, and he's saying, my friend. He's totally isolated because greed separates, greed isolates, and a rich relationship with God connects you to other people. Think what will happen to your emotional life. I was reading in a really interesting study that was published in Harvard Business Review last year by these two business profs, one's in British Columbia and one's at Harvard, and they, what they've discovered is this. They said, we have done a series of experiments in which it is reliably shown that a person will be much happier if you ask them to give money to charity or to buy gifts for their friends or family than if you ask that same person to buy something for themselves. And they said, what's remarkable is, this holds true even in countries that have a substantially lower uh, uh, income than our own. You can go to Uganda, and this is true. You go to India, and it's still true, because God has put into the human heart, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So if we make a rich relationship with God our core score, we're all going to be actually happier. Finally, your prayer life. What will happen to your prayer life if it's not like this tug of war with God, but you're like, Lord, whatever you want. It all came from you, I, whatever. And, and you have this readiness and this heart of joy and responsiveness to God. Yeah, there will be dry seasons in prayer, but wouldn't it be beautiful to have a growing confidence and a growing intimacy in prayer until you and I can say as Jesus did, Father, I know you always hear me. Those are the blessings that await the wise person, the person who, who makes the core score of their life a rich relationship with God. Now, friends, I, this, I struggled with this text. This text beat me up all week. This is not a feel-good text. This is not a seeker-sensitive text. And I asked myself, as I often do when interpreting, what is the good news of this text? And it finally came to me. Here's the good news. Jesus warned me in time. Now I know. And I don't have to make the same mistake. Amen.